Please stand for a reading of God's word. We'll be reading Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. That can be found on page 495 in the Blue Bibles that are located in the seat pocket in front of you. And if you do not have a Bible at home, please take this Bible home as our gift to you. Mark chapter 12, verse 18 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is God's word. Join me in prayer. God, we thank you for the fundamental promise of this passage of Scripture, that you are not the God of the dead, you are the God of the living. And God, we thank you that because of that, we can take confidence in the fact that you are still reigning over your people from all time from the beginning of their creation until the present day and long after we're gone, Lord, you will be preserving your people and and one day will cause them all to rise bodily before you, fully redeemed in glory. And so, Lord, we thank you for that promise. Lord, we thank you for the, the, the solid foundational nature of your word, how... Your word has been given to us to correct us in our wrong thinking. Your word has been given to us to reveal to us in no uncertain terms and no vague imagery the power of God. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the promise of of Romans chapter 1 that says, that we are not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of Christ, because it is the power of God to the salvation of all men and women who believe, first the Jew and then the Greek. And so, God, we pray that as we look into your word this morning, that we would not do it haphazardly, that we wouldn't do it casually, Lord, but we would allow the transformative work that your that your word sets out to do to have a preeminence in our life, God. We pray that 
You would convict us of sin, God, that you would encourage us in the, the, the godly duties of a righteous man or woman. God, we pray that you would uh, cause us to look deeper and go further into your word and in our confidence in your word and our reverence for your word than we ever have before this time. And so, God, we thank you for this moment. We give you this moment. We ask that you would accompany us in this moment. And God, allow us to be attentive to your word as you also assist me in the proclamation of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So good to have you here this morning. So chapter 12, I believe this is our third week in chapter 12 of Mark. And the idea, the, the theme of the entire chapter 12 of Mark, we are in the final week, if you'll recall, of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. And what we're seeing in Mark chapter 12 is a recall of Jesus' run-ins with the chief men of Jerusalem, his opponents in Jerusalem, this week before they will eventually seemingly prevail in putting him to death. As righteous judge, though, an interesting thing is happening in all of these moments, in all of these various confrontations that he has with with other leaders. And that is this, that he is, is consistently exposing their unfaithfulness, exposing their duplicity. See, they wanted, they, they assigned themselves the role of being Christ's judge, Christ's jury, Christ's executioner, as we'll see later in the week. But what is happening here is that Jesus is repeatedly silencing them, and he's exposing the darkness in their hearts. He's exposing the self-righteousness that is the operating principle of their lives, of their thinking. First, if you'll recall, Jesus told them a parable about some sharecroppers who violently rebelled against every agent that the landowner sent to them. And this culminated in a violent rebellion against even the landowner's own son in this parable. And it went further that they expressed not only their desire to resist the the rule of the rightful owner of the land, but they also intended to kill the son so that they could steal the crops that rightly belonged to the landowner. Now, Jesus makes it clear that these sharecroppers represented Israel's religious leaders who repeatedly, throughout their history, abused and killed God's prophetic messengers. And even now, they were doing what the sharecroppers in the story did. They were plotting against the Son. They were trying to arrest Him and eventually put him to death. And Mark says that the authorities knew that Jesus spoke this parable against them. And yet, though they knew that, though they saw themselves in the imagery of the parable, they refused to repent and believe. And instead, they merely proceeded with their wicked plans. Now next, as Jared told us last week, representatives of the Herodians, who embraced Herod, King Herod's secular government and his worldly ways, and who was not 
not even a Jew in the first place, along with the Pharisees who represented the conservative and highly legalistic faction, they came together to trap Jesus by asking him a politically explosive question. In their minds, there was no way for Jesus to answer the question in a way that would not get him in trouble with somebody, either the faithful Jews or the Romans. And though these guys were on different ends of the spectrum, they were united in their hatred of Christ and their determination to put him to death. Now, let me tell you something about human nature. Sinners of all kinds share absolutely common ground in their resistance to God, in their resistance to his ways, in their resistance to his truth, and in their resistance to his commands. But yet, regarded of this united effort, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, Jesus is both the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so Jesus, once again, immediately silences them with an absolutely flawless answer. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He had just said the image of Caesar is stamped on this coin. It belongs to Caesar. Give it to Caesar. Unhesitatingly. But he said, on you is stamped the image of God. Let Caesar have his money, but let God have you. He gave him this answer and it called his people to be be both godly and compliant citizens without failing to be wholehearted, devoted worshipers at the same time. So here we are now in this passage. Verse 18 begins this way. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Now, if you'll forgive me. For the terminology, these guys were the East Coast liberal elites of their day. They were usually well-to-do. They occupied the upper echelons of society. They were the priests. In fact, the high priest at this time was a Sadducee. I think Jared mentioned that last week. They were merchants. They were aristocrats. And they were opposed to the strict legalism and conservatism of the Pharisees. And therefore, unlike the Pharisees, they got along smashingly under Roman rule. Their main concern of their faction, their party, was just to maintain the cultural status quo. Don't rock the boat. Don't make waves. And they would view as absolutely dangerous, they would view them with suspicious eyes, anyone who would disrupt societal order and disrupt the the established authority. And for this very reason, they were opposed to Christ's teaching. While the Pharisees rejected him, the Pharisees did, that is, rejected him on theological grounds, They accused him of standing against the traditions of the elders that had been handed down from generation to generation. The Sadducees opposed him on cultural grounds. They branded him as a notorious disturber of the peace. And they didn't like it when he said things that they perceived to be against the law, to be against the temple, to be against the religious establishment. This is us. This is who identifies us. We're not worried so much about truth or the mishandling of truth. We just want you to leave things alone as they are. 
They wanted him to fall in line. They wanted him to recognize their authority. My goodness, one from their party was the high priest, for goodness sakes. They wanted him to obey the rules as they interpreted them. Now, unlike the Pharisees on that point, who revered the entire Old Testament and the written and the oral traditions that were handed down by the rabbis, the Sadducees only believed that the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were the word of God. That, that, those, that the law of Moses, uh, consisting in those five books, were the only books to be binding on people's consciences and behavior. They rejected the authority of all other 34 books of the Bible, of the Old Testament at that time, and what was known as the writings and the prophets, all of that stuff, Psalms, Job, you know, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of that was of no use to them. And this led them to be meticulous interpreters, really, you know, meticulous about their interpretation of the books of Moses. And they found in them not just guidelines for moral living, but they found over-realized loopholes to excuse they, their corrupt behavior. They are the ones that Jesus actually said this about the Pharisees, but in similar fashion, they are the ones who would strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And this led them to take other dubious theological positions. Among those things, they absolutely rejected any sense of God's sovereignty. They believed that salvation was only a matter of meticulously obeying the law of Moses. If you got those first five books right, didn't have to worry about anything else. Didn't have to worry about the heart of the matter. Just do the stuff. They rejected the reality of a spiritual realm occupied by angels and demons. They rejected any idea, as Mark tells us here, of the afterlife. Do you know why that was? Well, go back to the first thing I told you. Since Moses, in their interpretation of his books, never explicitly mentioned the afterlife, they just dismissed the idea uh, on the basis of their narrow interpretation of the first five books of the Bible. So on this occasion, they approach Christ like the Herodians and the Pharisees did before. They approach him with a question. And like the Herodians and the Pharisees, it is a loaded question. But the question that they asked is unlike the the one that the Pharisees asked because the Pharisees were asking a question that dealt with cultural conundrums of a nation that was under occupation. The, The Pharisees were concerned with what we call practical theology. They wanted to know how does... You know, uh, the, the, the truth applied to this situation with taxes and Caesar. But see, the Sadducees were concerned with what we call a speculative theology. It's what if questions. They asked, if the law of Moses is binding, which we absolutely believe it is, what difficulties would bodily resurrection, which you are proclaiming Jesus, create down the road? And so they reminded him of what the law says. Verse 19 says, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, how many of you will be honest enough to raise your hand and say, that sounds weird? Nobody? Nobody's lining up for that duty, men? They're referring to a passage in Deuteronomy that is known at this time as the Leveret Law. 
And the Leverett Law, in fact, grab your Bibles. Everybody grab your Bibles. Turn to Deuteronomy 25, and let's look at this together. And I want to make sure that you know that my application for today's sermon is not to get you guys to go marry your dead brother's wife. So that will not be the how to repent today. So (laughs) Deuteronomy 25 verse 5 says this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her brother, her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now, let me explain, if you're one of those ones that raise your hand, so that sounds a little weird to me. Let me explain, this is, this is applicable to the, the people of God, the Jews, under the Old Covenant. And under this requirement, this, this one that seems so strange to our 21st century thinking, the covenantal principle was this, and it was a good one, that no family in Israel would be left without heirs to inherit the promise that God had given them. No one would be left without. God's intention was that no family name would ever be blotted out in Israel, even through the death of the father. But every family would possess a a perpetual inheritance within the national borders that God was giving them. So now while the Sadducees, being adherents to the law, agreed entirely with the Leverett Law that we just described, they see a huge quandary with the implications of a theology of resurrection coupled with this requirement of Moses. Now, they knew that Jesus had espoused such a theology of resurrection, so they thought they had found the ideal grounds to, in front of everybody watching, everybody listening, assault his credibility. So they lay out this scenario, albeit it's a hypothetical scenario. Verse 20, and there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. This woman has some lousy luck. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Here's a problem, Jesus. We got you. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife is this woman going to be? For the seven had her as a wife. Uh Uh-oh, got a problem here. If you're going to say people rise again, and marriage is a holy and sacred institution, you've just connected this woman to seven men. Would Jesus dare suggest that this one woman has to be polygamously connected to these seven men in the bliss of paradise? Well, unhesitatingly, Jesus answers their question. And he does it in three ways. First, he diagnoses the root of their faulty theology. Next, he points out that on the basis of that faulty theology, they have radically misunderstood the essence of the kingdom of heaven, of what awaits believers at the end of this life. 
And lastly, he points out how miserably these experts, experts, have interpreted the law that they cherish. So his diagnosis is simple. It's to the point and it's all encompassing. Verse 24 says, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. See, the misunderstanding was rooted in the fact that they didn't truly know the scriptures and therefore they could have no confidence and no understanding of the power of God. Do you see how those two are connected? They didn't know the scriptures, and so they were ignorant of the power of God. We'll get more on that later. But this arrogant and willful ignorance meant that they didn't understand the nature, as I said, of what awaits true believers when this life is done. Jesus tells them in verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. Notice there that he says boldly to these guys, Not if they rise, but when they rise. The teaching of Jesus is that marriage is an earthly state. It's an earthly allowance that will no longer exist in heaven as we know it here because it will no longer be necessary. Now, if you are happily married... I know most of you in the room are married. If you're happily married, as I am, this might be for you a distressing thought. What? Jesus is going to annul my marriage? Yes. The reason this is a distressing thought is because we have an overly sentimental and romantic view of marriage that is more informed by Hallmark movies than by the Word of God. And so we can only imagine Jesus' words here to represent a painful separation from the one that we love. Under any other circumstances, I cannot imagine anything but utter emotional devastation should I experience a, a separation from my wife. But as he said to the Sadducees, our distress is not rooted in an unfair situation, but it's rooted in a fundamental ignorance and and misunderstanding of what the Bible says. So after giving practical and gospel instructions to husbands and wives about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, I encourage you to go home this afternoon and read Ephesians chapter 5, especially if you're married. After giving those instructions to husbands and wives about marriage, Paul says this in Ephesians 5.32. This mystery, speaking of the mystery of marriage, is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. In gospel covenant, my marriage is not as much as you might imagine about me and Ginger as it is about us and Jesus. Can I say that one more time? In Gospel Covenant, my marriage and the example it lays out and the way I work it out and the way it works sanctification to me is not so much about me and Ginger, as joyous and glorious as that is, as it is about us and Jesus. See, Christ way back in 1993, gave me my wife and he gave her to me 
to help me to deeply understand something I would not have understood as fully otherwise. How he sacrificially loves us. How as Paul says, he loves us and he lays down his life, he gives himself for us. And how we, in the role of the bride, respond by joyfully and obediently submitting to his rulership. See, in heaven, the weak shadow of my earthly marriage will give way to the beautiful, beautiful eternal substance of union with Christ, unhindered, unfettered, unbarricaded. The perfect union with Christ. The thing in my devotional life I long for so much today will be realized. The way Paul puts it is this. We walk by faith, but then we will walk by sight. We'll see it. It'll be there right before our eyes. The beauty that we are trying to portray in this life through this marriage will be fully realized in heaven. And nothing I can ever be for Ginger in symbol will ever rival what Christ will be to her in sight. It'll never happen. Never happen. Though our marriage and all of its joy and some of its heartache disciples us, it instructs us, it comforts us, it unites us, it should always create longing in both of us for that which is perfect, for that which is eternal, for that which is unbroken. My love for Ginger makes me zealous for her to enjoy the reality of what this is really all about. And the beautiful thing is, this is the cherry on top of the cupcake, folks. The beautiful thing is, we're not going to be separated at all. Not at all. Not in the least bit. Our marriage won't be in the same form, but we will be united forever, along with all of you who truly believe, as the bride of Christ, together, Enjoying Him forever. So Jesus' point in these truths is that seven husbands create no barrier to unity, uh, to the unity of Christ with His bride. That's His point. He said, you're messed up. You don't know your Bible, so you don't know how heaven works. But Christ wasn't done. He also corrected the Sadducees by quoting directly from the law they claimed to be experts in. From a critical moment, he refers to a critical moment in God's dealing with their beloved Moses. Verse 26 says, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him and said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite wrong. At the burning bush, Genesis chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 3, God revealed his sacred name to Moses. Yahweh. I am that I am. He did not reveal his name as I was that I was or I will be as I will be. And before this revelation, he introduced himself right when Moses turned aside to see the burning bush. He introduced himself by saying, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
And the Sadducees, in their thorough nitpicking examination of this text, missed an obvious biblical bit of information. See, in biblical interpretation, there are few things as important as determining tense. T-E-N-C-S-E. Right, Tyler? Got to know the tense. Past, present, future. It's important. And so what did God say? God did not say, long ago, Moses, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, sir, no, ma'am. He said, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Present tense. But these men had all been dead, here's the problem, for over 400 years when God spoke this to Moses. How is this even possible? If God, if this is true and the tense matters, how is it even possible? Well, because of this. Because if they had looked past the book of Deuteronomy, they would have found that the Bible clearly assures us that long after their bodies had stopped breathing, God receives the spirits of his faithful saints and keeps them safe until the time of their full redemption. Hebrews 12, in a passage that's literally about discipline, and receiving the discipline of God says this, and listen to the title it gives God. Shall we not be much more subject to the Father of what? Say it out loud. The Father of what? Spirits. The Father of spirits. And live. Don't doubt if you're a believer, God is the God of that body you're operating in right now. But long after it turns to worm food, God is going to be the God of your spirit. Amen? God preserves the lives of the saints even after they slip the bonds of this terrestrial ball. He is the God of the living, not the dead. And the Pharisees were duped by personal interpretation, by pet doctrine, and by a self-restricted view an understanding of God's revealed truth. They left out 34 of the 39 books of the Bible, of the Old Testament. Now, everybody here okay with the resurrection of the dead? Raise your hand. Everybody okay? Most of you? Okay. Let's make an appointment. We'll figure out the rest of it. So, when most of you admittedly are on the team... If I had interviewed you one-on-one, personally, before this message, and I said, hey, where are you going to go when you die? I'm going straight to Jesus. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. I'd say, bravo, good answer. So how do we make a message like this more practical to this group of people who is fairly confident of their, uh, their resurrection, their future resurrection? And I think in order to do this, let's back up momentarily in the text and think more deeply about not Christ's comments on resurrection, but his diagnosis of the particular disease of the Pharisees. Verse 24, Jesus said this, said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures, nor the power of God. If there is one judicial 
verdict of Christ of which the current generation of professing Christians is deserving, I am convinced that it is this one. This is the verdict that the gavel of God, for many of us, will someday come down and say, you are wrong because you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. If we were to cast aside our ego and ignore our best intentions and our highest examination of ourselves, if we were to truly look at us, are we any better off than the Sadducees of Jesus' day? See, there's nothing, and I'm convinced of it, there's nothing which is more damaging And may I add, there's nothing that is more damning to those who profess Christianity than the willful ignorance of God's word. In our country right now, um, our problem generally, it exists for sure, but our problem is not with the word of God, is not born of illiteracy. Our problem certainly cannot be called a lack of access to the Word of God. You, in fact, go to a church where there's one in every seat. We just stocked them up again last week. And you can take one whenever you want. You have them on your phones. You have them on your iPads. You have them on your computers. But if we are going to, like, strip away our ego, we have to admit that our our problem with the Word of God and our engagement with it is probably more because of laziness. Because of apathy. We just don't care. Because of distraction. And because of the pull of worldliness. And let me just tell you, loving you deeply, that we, in our church, in the churches of Lubbock, Texas, the churches around the world, are paying a steep penalty for this laziness, apathy, distraction, and worldliness. You don't... Feel the loss because you don't know what you have. Because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Think of the ways, in this moment of honest examination, think of the ways you expended the leisure time you had last week. I want to say before I say anything, I watched movies last week, watched some TV goofed off on Facebook a little bit. But if we had just a pie chart, how much of the time that we had free was devoted, honestly, to turning our ears to God's Word? Charles Spurgeon once said this highly troubling thing. He said, There is dust enough on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. Some of you may think that I'm cruel or harsh or judgmental or pharisaical for asking such a question. You may even say to me, you may may oppose what I'm saying and say, I am so busy. I have no leisure time. I wasn't on Facebook. I wasn't watching movies. I wasn't watching TV. I wasn't doing any of that. And I would respond by saying that the, the value, the, 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 the necessity of this is so great 
that if that's true, you are too busy. Would you have the audacity to ask God to bless the work of your hands and prosper you when your work is the very excuse to edge the hearing of His truth out of your life? When we reject God's word, we become obstinate and idolatrous. What do I mean by that? Well, we formulate a little collection of things like the Sadducees that we believe that God expects of us or God does for us. And anything outside of those bonds that might be revealed by a closer examination of the word of God offends us. And so we... We argue against it. We fight against it. It makes us not only obstinate and idolatrous, it makes us just out of fellowship with Christ. Dave prayed over us today that may the word of Christ dwell in your hearts richly by faith. The word of Christ. But most of us have grown up in a generation where we believe that Christ dwells in our heart by faith and have imagined that apart from his word. Is anyone hearing me this morning? Coupled with this is a general lack of knowledge concerning the power of God. Where are the saints who hide themselves away? Where are they among us who who will just hide themselves away for long seasons of prayer because they believe in a God who faithfully hears and who answers His children? Where are those who on the basis of their understanding of the power of God will proclaim the loss, uh, proclaim the gospel rather to the lost their loved ones, their friends, simply because they believe that inherent in the word of God is the power of God to convert sinners through the preaching of the gospel. Where are those that will stand for righteousness in the public square, at work, wherever else you find yourself, and do so in the face of deceivers who are hostile, of false teachers who are hostile because they believe that God has promised to be with us till till the end of the age in power, even in spite of persecution. Furthermore, there are those in our age who would try to tell us that we can experience the power of God somehow apart from the Word of God. But these things, the power of God and the word of God, never, never stand in dichotomy. They are intimately related. The church will never experience a true outpouring of God's power until it returns to God's word. Let me ask you a question, serious question especially those of you who are committed to this body. 
Do you want to see this church? Do you want to see the other churches in our city and around the world experience a revival of culture shifting uh, just proportions that would that would make a difference in the way that the culture sees Christ, Christians, His church, His sacraments, all of that. Do you want that? Become people who read the Word. Not, I'm not talking about a Bible reading plan. I'm talking about people who consistently consult the Word, who memorize the Word, who meditate on the Word, who who uh, can't live without the Word, who proclaim the Word. The elevation of and the reverence for the Word of God is the crucial first step of any revival coupled with prayer. It's absolutely crucial. Any so-called revival without the Scriptures as its sole foundation will be short-lived and it will result in nothing more than emotional nonsense and further worldliness. More will be lost by that kind of revival than won by it. And Jesus says that those who don't know the Word, they're not taking a different position or trained differently, Jesus says they are in error. You cannot be a wise, functioning, prospering Christian living a life of faith apart from the Word of God. Let me take it to the logical conclusion. Do you want to gamble with the security of your eternal soul? Because that's the real danger of neglecting the Scriptures. Do you want to naively believe because you did something, some work that you've punched your ticket to heaven only to hear Christ say in the final moment, depart from me, I never knew you. How do we know that he doesn't know us? First, he tells us that. Second, he has given us the fully inspired, inerrant, infallible, reliable, sufficient word to know that you know him. The Word is a, is a mirror and it tells us who we really are, the Scriptures tells us. May God win our hearts back to His truth today. Wipe off the dust that Spurgeon talks about. Dig into your Scriptures. And some of you might say that I, I don't know, I'm not an intelligent person. Start with what you know. Start with what you can understand. Mark Twain famously said, I'm sure many of you have heard it. Mark Twain famously said, I am not concerned about the things in the scriptures I don't know. I'm very concerned about the things in scriptures I do understand. So start with what you understand. Read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the story of the church in Acts. Read the stories of David and, and, and the Exodus and things like that that you can understand. And then, furthermore, when you don't understand, have the courage and the humility to come to Pastor David, come to me, come to Gabriel, come to someone in this church. It doesn't even have to be us. It's not a clerical function. It's a function of the body. And say, I don't get this. I don't understand what I just read. Help me. But don't use your, your lack of, of intellect as you see it as, a, as an excuse not to engage with the Word. If you are literally illiterate, I don't even know if you can say that, but if you're illiterate, 
get a Bible app that has the audio and listen intently to the Word of God. Find ways to keep the Word of God in front of you. And on this matter of the, the knowledge of the Word of God and, and salvation, first, uh, John in his first epistle says this in verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So if your Bible is one of those ones with the layer of dust on it, how do you know? How do you know that you have eternal life if you haven't received it, not from the testimony of Pastor Mark, but the testimony of God himself? Many of us have only a preacher's word or our own narrow beliefs to assure us. But the only way we know we're saved is the confirming testimony of Scripture. So may God mercifully, because it is an act of His mercy, fill us with an insatiable hunger for His Word and for His truth. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. May we pursue His Word with the tenacity with which we pursue our daily food. Would you rise? Please don't let this moment pass. By further hardening your heart against God's call to pay attention, to stand at attention to his word. If you have pursued other things, if you failed in your commitment to his word on any level, Would you just take the time to really be honest about that this morning and repent of it? Would you take the time to ask God to stir within you the hunger for his word? Would you ask him to help you to follow through with that commitment and not even to view it as a commitment, but a joyful reunion with him, to know him, to understand him? He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. His word is truth. Heavenly Father, we come to you, God, and we we have been so much so often like the people standing at the bottom of Mount Sinai, and we've wanted mediators to speak to us. They wanted Moses to speak to him, God. We didn't want... They didn't want God to speak to them directly. And so, God, we we repent of that. You've given us your word. You've sent your word to us so that we could hear you and we could know you and we could embrace you and we could live in the, the comfort of knowing you and the comfort of knowing that you know us. So, Lord, I pray that you would... God, give us no rest until we return with diligent hearts to Scripture. And in the Scriptures, God, let us find a longing, a thirsting 
for the power of God to be revealed among us, God. For the Spirit of God to be poured out in ways that are genuine, that are based in Scripture, that result in the conversion of sinners and the revival of your church. So God, we come to you now, Lord, knowing how weak and how frail and how inconsistent we are, and we ask you to supply what we need. Because the promise of your word is that it is God who works in us, both to will and to do your good pleasure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to have our communion helpers come and assist us. That'd be great. Thank you. Um, I just want to encourage you that, uh, you know, the reformers always called this moment in the service where the, the partaking of the Lord's Supper would happen as visible words, as, as a, 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 a illustrated sermon, as it were, to see that uh, the confirming of the word of God that we just spoke about, that, that Christ, who was innocent, who was undefiled, was sacrificed for us who were sinful and broken. And he was broken for us. And, and though our hands are stained with the blood of all of our sins, his body was stained with precious holy blood that is that, that was not guilty of anything. And the Bible says in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him, in union with him, we might become the righteousness of God. What a stunning thought that is. The guys with all of our baggage, ladies with all of our baggage, like you and I, could be recognized as the righteousness of God. Praise God for that. If you have no other reason to worship and you have plenty, that's a great place to start. Amen? And so let's come to this table and recognize that reality that uh, Christ has purchased us and given us his righteousness and imputed his righteousness to us by a gracious act in our closing moment of worship in this service. So if you would come and receive the elements and then go back to your seat and we'll take them together in a moment. Now, can we give thanks for a moment? God, we thank you for your indescribable gift of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you have uh, saved us You have sanctified us. You will soon glorify us. And you've confirmed all of these things in your glorious word so that we can have confidence in them, so that we can know and that that we know, that we know that we are yours. And for this, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, place your hands in a receiving position. And I just want to proclaim this benediction over you as we go. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.